Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Who's down with D&D? This whole party. Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. I'm down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Who's down with D&D? Are you ready to get down with some D&D? I know why. I'm, and I am joined, as I am always joined, by the memorable, marvelous, and merry Mad Wizard Merwin. What's up, Sean? My cat is making me less merry than I usually am. Is he annoying you AF? Yes, yes. Well, he every morning when I sit at my desk, he spends about an hour pawing at my face until I pet him. And then he lies down. And if I'm busy, like, say, I have a podcast to record... Being pawed in the face is generally not the best way to uh, go about professionally recording a podcast. I mean, it does create some wonderful humor, though, right? It Well, yes. Luckily, he's declawed, or otherwise I would also be screaming <laughs> in pain. <laughs> well, that has been your uh, comedy minute of Down With D&D. You know I suppose it. we should move on to announcements now, right? Sure. <laughs> All right. Uh, first thing. This is from uh, D&D Beyond. It's Role-Playing 101, Improvising Your Way to Victory. It's by James Hake. I think this is a wonderful article. Uh, the first thing he talks about is yes and and how it doesn't fit every situation. Because guess what? It doesn't fit every situation. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you cannot say yes. That, or if you do, it could ruin not only the adventure but the whole campaign. Yes, that is correct. So mm-hmm. the the thing I love about this is, is Hake has been an actor in his time. And he mentions that. Role-playing games are a lot like long-form improv, and while Yes Amp works pretty well for like short-form comedy improv, it doesn't always work for long-form. And then he goes into the idea of Yes But, which is a really good one, because then you can agree with something that somebody throws out, but then modify it to make it work within the, the context of the game that is being played. Or you can even say no, or you can say no but, which is like, no, that is not a thing that happens, but we can mesh it in in a way that works with what we're actually doing. So he goes into those ideas because, yeah, the yes and thing doesn't always work. It is a good tool. It is not universal. Mm-hmm. Um, he also then talks about getting into character by leading with your physicality. And there's a nice video from uh, Link from Matt Mercer in there that talks a little bit more about that. So like, if you're into that kind of play and are, are interested in getting into character more, because that's very much a play style thing that I like to do, uh, use some physicality and, and movement to make a character work, then uh, it's a really good little video. Mm-hmm. It really is uh, kind of a one-on-one quick how to just pull off these NPCs uh, without you know, practicing forever. Uh-huh. It's really good stuff. I highly okay. recommend it. Uh, number two, uh, there's this. it's a quick starter, which we'll talk about quick starters in a second, which is a Kickstarter called Limitless NPC Revisions 100 Plus 5th Edition NPCs. So this Kickstarter, it's 101 neutral setting non-player characters. It's all 5th edi- edition stat blocks. Uh, there's a bunch of creative CR appropriate treasure inside of there. There's dozens of skill challenges, Sean. I love that kind of stuff, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Who doesn't love a good skill challenge? I know everybody out there is groaning, but you're, you're, all, you're all misinformed about the skill challenge. Those were a really good yep. idea. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes, they were. Um, there's some new monsters, gods, and magic items. And then there's 300 plus further adventure writing prompts, which I think are really neat. I love stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so here's what a quick starter is for those who are curious, because I was curious when I saw this. I'm like, what the heck's a quick starter? It's a thing on Kickstarter that has a set of rules, and you can't call yourself a quick starter unless you follow these specific rules. Rule number one, you have to plan it in three months or less. Rule number two, you have to keep the campaign under 20 days. Rule number three is that the funding goal should be under $1,000. Rule number four is offer rewards that are always $50 or less, or under $50, I should say. Rule number five is that if you have a video, you have to shoot it in one day. Rule number six is that there's no PR or media outreach unless contacted. Rule number seven is no paid ads on social media. Rule number eight is no stretch goals. And rule number nine is include Quickstarter in your campaign name. I love everything about that. Yeah, it's it's pretty interesting. I, I wonder if Kickstarter did kind of a survey or did, you know, user found user data that said that this would be a good a good thing for everyone, you know, for creators, for uh, fans. Interesting. I just want to go and search Quickstarter now on Kickstarter to see all the different Quickstarters that pop up. Mm-hmm. Also, it makes me think that I could do a Quickstarter for some of the um, the actual play type stuff that I want to uh, to put out there. So, like, well, 
You want the season of audio uh, of actual play, which is like, you know, 16 episodes. Like, here's the quick starter for it, which will be like 500 bucks. Kind of an interesting mm-hmm. thought. It, it is. Um, okay. Well, uh, just just to just to go into a little bit more there. It, it It is interesting that when we you know, when we think of these Kickstarters, we're always drawing focus to the ones that get two million, three million dollars. Um, and I, it maybe has lost a little bit of its initial goal as you know kickstarter itself as a way for people to create cool things quickly and and uh you know not as a content delivery tool or a publishing tool but but as a you know as a way for creators to be able to do things they wouldn't be able to do otherwise i agree 100 percent with that and i think um the rpg zine month that happened this month was a, mm-hmm. was a good indicator of that like because yeah. no one was looking for thousands and thousands of dollars for their RPG zines. Like, it was just neat to see all of them out there. Right. Um, also, there was, like, a, a like a fallout effect from that, too. By the way, if nobody knows what I'm talking about, uh, Kickstarter had, like, a promotion in February for doing RPG zines. So if you were going to put together a zine, there were some specific rules that that followed. And, like, there was, like, a hundred and a hundred, over 100 of them that existed last month. But the fallout from that was that a lot of the bigger Kickstarters or other RPG Kickstarters got didn't get as much money as they normally would have because people were spending money on zines, hmm. which I think is interesting, uh, yeah. right? No, I I I don't mind that at all. You know, I think that's I think that's neat. I think that's in the spirit of what Kickstarter is. I agree a hundred percent. Do you want to do the next one? Sure. So. We're going to go back and talk to our friend DM David about how to make NPCs that your players will like. And as always, he does a great job of breaking down um, a a fairly complex topic into digestible chunks. Um, his his uh, thoughts are, first, don't fridge the NPCs that your players like. Um, if you don't know what fridging means, it's basically killing off uh, of secondary characters in order to show how bad the bad guys are. Um, and it's, I believe it's called fridging because often the hero would come back and find their love interest or friend in the refrigerator. It's awful. Uh, ch- chopped up into pieces. Yeah, it's 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 a terrible practice. Don't do it. Yeah. People need and, to die for reasons. Yep. Now, now, there's a difference between fridging someone and threatening someone. That's true. Right. Yes, and it's it's better to threaten and let the players uh, deal with that than it is just to kill a, an NPC as a as a way of contrasting it or as a way of explicating how bad the bad guy really is. So here's the thing: you can threaten, and then if the player characters don't heed the threat or do something about the threat, then you can follow through on your threat because right. that is exactly that is not necessarily fridging them because. Well, right. we, we 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 set the stakes, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then, and then you know that gives them a way out. It gives them, it gives the plot. Threatening deepens the plot, right? Whereas fridging just is, ooh, look how bad this bad guy is. Which you you don't you can do that in so many other ways. Um, so that was that was the first. Oh, go ahead, Chris. It looked like you were about to say. No, something. no, go ahead. Okay. The second one is pay attention to who they like. So as you're going about your adventure and as you're going about to your campaign, take the time to see who the the players and their characters want to interact with um, and focus your attention on those NPCs rather than trying to put these other NPCs in front of them. And you can then change around what you are planning to do um, to put the focus on the NPCs that the players like. So if a Harper agent is going to be more important later in your adventure and they they are play uh, role-playing a lot with the bartender, make the bartender the Harper agent instead of whoever you're going to bring in. Uh, it focuses the story more and it gives you the chance to deepen the... Um, the resonance of these NPCs that the the players are already invested in. I agree. It's such good advice. It is. Um, 
see is create a small cast of recurring characters. Uh, so rather than having a cast of thousands, have a cast of ten. And make those ten more memorable. Yes, give them little bits than, of love. Yep, exactly. Give them interesting traits. Give them interesting motivations. Give them their own stories that can then bleed into the bigger story that you're telling. Can I stop you for a second? You sure. said C is create. And, and when you said C is create, I was like, I, I was thinking the song C is for cookie. And I was like, <laughs> C is for create a small cast C of characters. It's good enough for yep. me. <laughs> Just, yes. rum, 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 rum. Uh-huh, yep. for, that's Sesame Street, everybody. Sesame Street. If you don't know what we're Sesame talking Street. about, it's Sesame Street. That's right. right. Uh, so next link NPCs to the PC backgrounds. And again, this is just rather than going wide with your cast and your story, go deeper. So bring these NPCs that they like into the story, not just as props for their ongoing plot or ongoing story, but link them to the PCs background in some way. If a PC, um, is an outlaw, Maybe the NPCs are someone that the the character stole from or was a partner for the character when they were um, outlaws together. You know, some sort of deeper connection than just what's happening in the forward going story. Mm hmm. Yep. And last but not least, let the players help create them. And I want I wanted you to talk about this. Chris, sure. So there's it's. This is one of those things that you don't necessarily have to do if your if your players don't want this stuff. Um, and that's fine, but if they do want a little bit more creation, like it's the thing where you can, when um when an NPC pops up, you can be like, uh, all right, um if you want this person in there, why don't you tell me a little bit about them? Why don't you give me um how how do you know them? What are they? How do they matter to you? Um even even if somebody could see say like I know a guy, and I'm like, all right, you know somebody. Uh, tell me about this person and why they're like, let them make the uh the little bit of interesting traits or motivations for them. Mm-hmm. And that's a, that's a good way to let the players have some investment in the world. Like, yeah. And it's funny because when I saw, I think the exact words in DM's David article was, I know a guy. Yeah. And, and that reminded me of like fate where I know a guy might be a, uh, an aspect, uh, an aspect that, that you have where that's, that's what you're good at. You're good at knowing a guy. Uh, so that's why I wanted you to talk about it because it 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 harkened back to some of those storytelling games or you know more more storytelling games where players have a little bit more agency in in that creation. Man, D and D fifth edition has got way more um way more latitude and and variability for that kind of stuff than other versions of the game. The the newest mm-hmm. this 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 edition of the game. So like, I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of DNA from those kinds of games in this game or availability right. for that to happen. Yep. And so, so two things with that too. Uh, if, if the creation of these details is something that you want more in your game, you want your players more invested, hand out inspiration when they do it. Uh, and two, if it's something where they really, really benefit mechanically or, you know, in terms of their success in an overall story, you know, let them do that by spending inspiration. Yes, yes, that exactly. Inspiration, the inspiration mechanics, a great mechanic for stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Because they, you know, maybe they're they know they're off to fight a red dragon, and so they're looking for potions of fire resistance. You know, uh-huh. that's a big mechanical thing, and so you can say. You know, they say, oh, we need to find these things. Oh, well, you know, you could know a guy. If you give me your inspiration, now tell me about this guy who's going to sell you these potions. And, you know, let the let the imagination of the table carry the day rather than relying on your own uh, imagination the, the whole time. So, I mean, I, yes, all that stuff. I agree with, with all of that stuff. Um, some of the backgrounds actually mm-hmm. have some mechanics that do things like this. Sure. I think it's the entertainer of the minstrel. Like when you walk into a town, like you tend to know somebody or you can go somewhere and get, um, maybe it's the entertainer. Like that's actually like a 
think no, it's pop. Yeah, popular by demand. Like you can always find a place to perform. Usually, in a tavern or possibly at the circus or a theater, even a noble's court. Like you're just like, yeah. I mean, if there's a place like that in town, I can go there, and that makes you something of a local figure. So like, like you can at, at that point, if the game masters want to make that stuff up or the the dungeon master, like you can probably make that stuff up yourself. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think the sage. Like if you're looking for scrolls or if you're looking for tomes, um, the sage will always know where to find books that have the information you're looking for. You know, rogues have a criminal contact. Yep. Folk hero uh, has rustic hospitality. Yep. Nobles have you know some sort of hospitality. So all of those things can be piggybacked upon to p- provide that information, and it's just as uh, allowable to let the character create that. Than it, as it is for you as the DM to create it. Absolutely, especially if you don't feel like doing it. If you're if you're mm-hmm. the DM, right? Because that stuff doesn't really necessarily hurt your game. Because <laughs> yeah, it's not it's true. Usually, that stuff is not necessarily tied to your plots. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, okay, so that DM David doing doing the work for all of us. Yes, thank you, DM David. Uh, the so the last thing that we're going to talk about before we get to our topic is the the video history of Dragonlance by the Gamers Table. So this is like a twenty two minute video, and it's the history of Dragonlance, and it's really fun. Um, there's a cool bunch of bits in there that I didn't know about, and mm-hmm. uh, like here's just a couple of them. So for those who didn't know, um, Dragons of Autumn Twilight was originally three times longer. Yeah. So do you do you Sean? Do you know why it was cut down? I do not. I'm actually reading it right now, and I'm I'm glad it was cut down. Yeah, I mean, so um, this was being published by Random House, mm. this book, and Random House had didn't think it was going to sell at all, and because they didn't think it was going to sell at all, they're like, well, let's put a flat two dollars and ninety nine cent price point on it. So this is back in the day mm. when books cost two dollars and ninety nine cents and not like you know ten dollars. Right. Um, that meant that the book had a hard limit for its page count so then you know okay. that's the reason why right. the manuscript got cut down so this and that manuscript um uh, weiss has said like it exists out there it's just no nobody's ever seen it you know like that's funny it's there and when people yeah. ask like is anybody ever going to publish it and they're like go ask tsr <laughs> or not tsr go yeah. ask i mean that's the joke right but go ask right. go <laughs> ask wizards <laughs> of the coast because they have it right yeah. So that's pr- that's pretty funny. And then of course it sold millions of copies and it was on like right. the New York Times bestseller list and all that good stuff. Yep. Um the other one is Rastlin's Golden Skin and Hourglass Eyes were uh by that 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 picture, that painting that everybody knows of the heroes of the Lance sitting around the uh sitting around mm-hmm. together. That was by Larry right. Elmore. Um he had like 2 days to paint that. So mm-hmm. one he was annoyed by that. Um and he he barely got it together in time. And two, once it was done and people saw it uh they were like, what's up with the skin and the hourglass eyes and why doesn't he look like Karamon since they're twin brothers? Right. And Larry Elmer was like, because I thought it was cool. So then Weiss and Hickman had to figure out how to explain all that stuff. <laughs> so that's how we get the test of the Tower of Sorcery, yeah. sorcery and then the Tower of Sorcery yeah. and all the stuff that goes along with it. And the, um, the fact that Rastlin sees the decay of the universe and, and all that good stuff. Yeah, I mean, those novels, especially back... When I, you know, when I was young, and reading them were were D and D to me. You know, it was really the really great, if not great literature, uh, great fantasy uh, literature. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I mean, I, those those books are good, fun, pulpy stuff, and they're very, oh yeah, they're very epic fantasy, and they're very D and D, especially the first one. Exactly. Yeah. I mean that I learned kind of how to play D&D by reading those or or run D&D or tell a D&D story. Yeah, I mean that first book has some seriously iconic moments. Um mm-hmm. the first time they fight the um uh, what do they call the dragon folk? Oh yeah, the uh draconians. Yeah, the draconians. The first time they fight the draconians, um I think it's Caramon or Sturm stabs one of them and they turn to stone and they can't get their sword out. You can't get sword out. Yeah. yeah. And then there's the fight on the pots on the chains mm-hmm. like super yep, iconic, yep. right? Right. And then they fight a black dragon, and that black dragon totally melts uh, River Wind. Yeah, yep. yeah. And then and then Moonsong uh, heals him with the staff. Right. So like, yeah, like those are super iconic moments from from that particular book. Yeah. Also, there's the whole thing where it's the uh, they're in the inn, the inn of the last home, and the the tr- draconian army is showing up, and Tannis is like everybody out the back, and that starts everything. Mm-hmm. 
Yep. So good, good stuff. There's there's there is really good stuff in that book. Um, that's very D and D. So it's it's yeah. I mean, like go go watch the video. It's really good. It's funny too. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it is funny. <laughs> there's well, one last thing. Tasselhoff. Tasselhoff is named after the Hoff. <laughs> like, because because they were all uh, like Hickman and Weiss, and um and Laura Hickman were all fans of uh of Knight Rider. Right. So David Hasselhoff, that's where the, is is the the namesake for for uh, Tasselhoff, yeah, Burfoot. Tasselhoff Burfoot. Yeah, so that's ridiculous, right? <laughs> it don't mess with the Hoff don't, at all. Don't mess with the Hoff. Uh, all right, moving on. Let's get to our main topic for the day. So we're going to talk about uh, moving forward with our our um, ad- adventure now series. We talked about the overview a couple of weeks ago. And now we're going to talk about length and scope, which is one of the some of the subtopics of uh, of our, our overview. You mm-hmm. ready for this? I am as ready as I will ever be. All right. So let's talk about length. So, Sean, first question that we want to tackle here is why does length matter? Length matters because you want your adventure, regardless of where it fits in, into your campaign, to have a beginning, a middle, and an end. And... So if you only have an hour per adventure to tell your story, that's going to be a much different design than if you have an adventure that's going to run for six or eight hours or longer. It's true. I agree. Um, And if you're there's a difference if you are writing for publication or writing just for your own group, because when you're writing for your own group, you have the. Um, excuse me, you have the ability to tailor the time that you run. Whereas if you're publishing your adventure, the person who buys your adventure and runs it generally wants to know how long does this adventure take? Am I able to run it in one four-hour session or one two-hour session or one eight-hour session? Or does it break up over several sessions, but there are good resting points? All of these things... Um, go into the discussion when you talk about the length and the scope of an, a, an individual adventure, right? Yeah, I agree. I mean, that you couldn't okay. have said it any better, really. I probably could have without coughing, but yes. I mean, that's okay. That's why I have an editor. Right, Doc? Mm-hmm. Thanks, Doc. Thanks, Doc. Love you. Um, so let's move on to the next question, then, because I don't have anything to add. Uh, what constraints mm-hmm. are put on length? And I think the first one, the easiest one, is time. Sure. Uh Time is probably going to be your most important aspect of deciding what kind of story you're able to tell within the the length of the adventure. Um, So you have to think about time as you flesh out the story, as you decide how much is going to just happen in the adventure, Mm -hmm. and how many choices are you able to give the players as to the direction that they take in in uh, attaining their goals of the adventure. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Right. If you only have an hour, uh, they're not going to get too many choices. No. Right. No, they, they might the, get the, one. They, they could, <laughs> right. They, they can have micro choices, right? Mm-hmm. How they are going to respond to something, the, the actions they are going to take around a very small and specific uh, choice, but they won't be able to in one hour lay down a mystery in front of them where they can go in several uh, different directions to solve the, the mystery. Yeah. If there's, if there's going to be a mystery, it's basically going to be one or two clues and they're going to have to figure out the the mystery from that one or two clues. Right. And, and now, now you could make a truly matrix uh, adventure where they could go in four different directions, but they won't be able to backtrack that's that's in, true in a one hour adventure yeah. right so you could make four different encounters that each follow a different clue but they won't be able to backtrack and find another clue in an hour they will have to continue forward based on that information so all four clues have to lead to the conclusion yeah that's interesting right because that is a longer length but it's still a short time to run it in right 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 exactly the the, the obviously the adventure will be longer word count wise but time-wise, it will still be a shorter. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, those are all the things right there. Uh, so there's that. 
that's time. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's, so what's the difference between a one-hour adventure and an adventure that lasts between 8 and 12 hours? Uh, 7 to 11 hours. That's that's fair. I mean, I'm going to go I'm going to get all mathematical. I mean, you absolutely can. I mean, but and based yeah. on based on really what we just said with the choices thing is like there's going to be more choices that can be made. Right. And just let me break down a few tips for writing a 1-hour adventure. Sure. Let, you've done a lot of it, so you're a good person to give tips. It's a really great exercise to do as a writer. I would suggest doing it just like I would suggest a novelist to write short stories, you know, to to work on that sort of narrative form. I would suggest someone who wants to write a, a four, eight, twelve-hour adventure to try to write one-hour adventures. Uh, even if you're not going to publish them, just try to to write them and run them to get a feel for component parts of a longer adventure. But if you are going to write a one-hour adventure, um, understand that how you um, I'm, I'm trying to pull my thoughts together without notes here how you design that adventure is going to limit the player how much the players can role play uh, interact explore all those things. So you want the plot of the adventure to be simple enough to fit um, within that scope. You don't want to have a whole array of NPCs in there that the players can talk to. You want one NPC who tells them what they need to do or gives them the goal or gives them the information they need to move on. Um, You don't want a six, seven, eight room dungeon uh, to explore because each of those rooms could, even if they have practically nothing in them, turn into 10 minutes. And so if you have seven rooms and each room is going to take 10 minutes, you're over your hours allotment right there. So only put in rooms or exploration areas that move the story forward dramatically, get across the information or the challenge that needs to be gotten across without uh, extra wasted time role-playing or exploring or or even combats that really don't add much to the the story that you're trying to get across. Yeah, I mean, everything needs to be on theme. Uh, we talked mm-hmm. about that, uh, the Edgar Allan Poe... Um, right, Unity of Effect. Unity of Effect. Like, it's even more important in a one-hour adventure. Yeah. But what what designing these one hour adventures do is it teaches you what is important. Right. It it allows you to it gives you permission to pare down the adventure to just its its elemental, its essence. Uh, And then when you go off and write your four, eight and 12 hour adventures, your your creative writing muscles, right? Your adventure design muscles are honed to doing that and excising all of that extra stuff that that's not needed. So your four and your eight and your 12 hour adventures are just as tight and just as, as intense as that one hour adventure. Here's a, here's a thing to go along with what you're saying. A thing that I've um, recently learned about in, in any creative or artistic endeavor Writing a bunch of one-hour adventures that you're never going to publish or put out there is perfectly fine to do because you're basically doing a study. For mm-hmm. those who don't understand what a study is, a study is like if an artist is going to paint the same thing like a hundred times to get better at painting that thing. Uh, that So like, I'm going to draw a face a hundred times so that I learn how to draw faces. It'll even be the same face or similar faces so that I get mm-hmm. that. The same thing with a one-hour adventure. In fact, if you you might want to just take like an adventure seed idea and try to write that adventure three different times. See what happens mm-hmm. when you try to write that one-hour adventure three different times. Exactly. I mean, yep. it'll only take you. Um, I mean, it, since you're not writing this necessarily for publication, just for practice, it might only take you a couple of hours to write these one-hour adventures each time. Because I mean, it might take you longer the first time, but every time you do it, you'll get a little faster at it because you'll understand the process. Mm-hmm. So that's that's the point of doing stuff like that. Like it'll just make you better at your craft. 
Yep. So, and even in a one-hour adventure, you still want, you know, your hook. You want your beginning. Then you want your middle, where the action takes place and the story plays itself out. The characters make their choices. And then you want the resolution. You want the end, where the consequences of those actions are shown to the characters. Whether it's a one-hour adventure, a four-hour, eight-hour, 12-hour, whatever, you know, all of those elements still can be in uh, that adventure length. And you know the really cool thing to me about writing a one-hour adventure is, or something that's really short, is that your theme, your theme and your tone, like you can just cram it in there often and all the time because it never mm-hmm. feels overblown. Right. Yeah. And and the, the so the pacing, of course, for a one-hour adventure is going to be pretty intense. And it doesn't have to be, you know, gripping the edge of your seat intense, but... Like Chris said, you want that whatever theme you're trying to get across, whatever mood, whatever atmosphere you're you're going for, you want it to be very intense in a one-hour adventure. With the pacing of a longer adventure, you don't want the same story beat to be hammered home for for eight or twelve hours constantly. Yeah, you right? need more stuff. Like there needs to right. be other things that you can do. And and so when we talk about those length adventures, we will talk more about pacing and, you know, the the up and down, the intensity, and then the, I don't want to say denouement because that means something different in, uh, you know, in... Denouement is a terrible term for role-playing game adventure writing. Yes, in fact, exactly. there's a lot of terms that go for role-playing game writing that do not work when you're comparing role-playing game writing to um, creative writing. Right. So let, let's define it since I said it. So denouement is in a story, there's rising action. You get to the climax and then the denouement is what happens afterward. It's the resolution. It's it's the it's the re- revelation of the consequences of the climax, basically. Yes. Uh, um, and so that has a very specific thing. What I'm talking about is rising and falling action. So the increasing intensity and then the decreasing intensity of certain aspects of your plot. Uh Story Beats, I believe, was used by uh, Robin Laws. Not, yeah, thank you, Robin Laws, in his book Hamlet Tip. Yes. By the way, if you want to be uh, an adventure writer, you should go get that. <laughs> right. Yeah, I, and, I think you can find actually the text that's the important part of it uh, online if you go look it up. Mm-hmm. I think it's free, but it it has three examples of three different movies, and it shows how those movies get story beated out and the different kind of beats that there are right. in those movies. Right. And so I've I've seen story beats. I've heard story beats used a lot uh, in the RPG world and sometimes used incorrectly. Uh, I've heard people say story beat when they're talking about plot and the individual pieces of a plot. That's not really what a story beat is. A story beat is the the emotion, if you will, the the atmosphere, the tone of of something, so you don't want to have a super horrific um, scene go on for an hour, right? You you want to hit them with that scene. If it goes on for too long, it loses its effect. So you want to keep it very short and then move on to a different tone, a different theme that gives uh, the players the chance to dwell on the horror that happened. And then you can move on to something else and then go back to horror again after they've been let down from that emotional high. Yeah, that is uh, there. There are all kinds of different like story beats, too, especially when the sure. hit point things. But that is that is a good one. Like yeah. you want to you never want to. So like when you when Sean mentions like horror for an hour, that's usually more than one one moment of horror when you're doing horror for right. an hour. And really, the 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 pretty good rule to follow like the good guideline to follow is that you never want to hit the same kind of beat three times more than three times in a row because then it loses its effectiveness exactly exactly so uh so in in a you know in a short adventure you can you can you can hit the same beat three times and then the adventure's over yeah and that's fine right like is it that is what that adventure is about then Yep. So, but when you get to the four-hour or the eight-hour uh, adventures, you want to vary those beats because you can't hit the same beat, 
you know, every 10 minutes for four yeah. hours. And the nice thing is, is that um, sort of it, these aren't exactly the story beats, but they're kind of like um, beat types, I suppose, in D&D. They they give them to you right in the in sort of like the design of the game with um the, the the interaction part, the combat part, and the um, mm-hmm. the exploration part, those are all yep. different kinds of um, kind of beats to have in your game. They all have different feels, right? And and just to give an example of what Chris is saying, is if you're in a dungeon, and you 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 get to the entrance of the dungeon, you check for traps, you either find them or you don't. You either you know get hit by a trap or you don't then you move in and you're in the first corridor and you check for traps and you either find traps or you don't or you you know or you get hit by a trap or you don't and then you come to the first door and you check for traps and if you are doing that same exploration check for traps be over and over and over again by by the third time players are starting to lose interest already so you want to intersperse them not even necessarily with a large combat or not necessarily with throwing an NPC in there for interaction, but stopping and looking at the details and giving a description of something that's deep enough that it pulls the player's minds out of the exploration mode for a few minutes and puts their mind in a different place. So when they do come back and have to check for traps on the first door again, it's not, oh, here we go, we're checking for traps for the 17th time in a row because it's not in a row anymore because you've given them something else to think that's about. That's right. So uh, that's the thing that's hardest, in my opinion, about designing uh, dungeons is that mm-hmm. uh, people lose track of the the kind of different different moments you can have so that you don't get that boring, repetitive thing, which includes fights, right? Fights, oh, absolutely. Fight after fight after fight can be rather boring. Yep, or interaction. You know, you're you're at a party. Your your party is at a party. Yeah, and they, uh, you, someone at the party is the assassin who's going to try to kill the merchant, and so you have to question all of the guests. You don't want to just go from one guest to the next and ask them questions. Uh, if you have to do that, I would strongly suggest breaking the players up, so each one individually questions someone. Because then at least each person gets a a spotlight. Other people can pull back and become viewers rather than actors in it. Mm -hmm. And that will break up that a little bit. But even then you might want to, during the questioning of the 12 guests who could be the assassin, um, throw in a combat or throw in something different than just question, 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 question. Yeah, uh, uh, some event to break that up. In fact, when we talk about um, format or uh, when we talk about um, uh, uh, frameworks, we'll talk about some of that stuff. That'll mm-hmm. be in a future episode. Uh, so, I mean, really that's the difference with the four, eight, or 12-hour adventure. It's really just about pacing. Yep. Like, your, your pacing is just going to be different, and you're going to need... The one-hour adventure will teach you how to write really well in one tone, one theme. The four, mm-hmm. eight, and 12 hours will allow you to, like, start expanding to adding more theme and more tone to your... Different right. kinds of tone to your adventure design. Yep. Uh, so, Sean, when does a long adventure become a series of adventures? That is a great question, and I don't know that I have a great answer to it, Uh I would say that a long adventure becomes a series of adventures when the consequences of the actions become so great that a break is needed in order to digest those consequences. Um, so I, if, if I had an adventure where uh, you know, something so big in, in terms of the plot, in terms of the character's... Um, story arc that it it changed you know the way that they feel about their characters or about the adventure then it's time to stop that adventure and then start a new one uh, does that make sense i think that makes a lot of sense i think some of it's feel i'm with you mm-hmm. some of it's like when when does that that moment happen right right um i think some of it's like because you can have little stories inside of a big story as far mm-hmm. as like adventure goes, you can have little adventures inside of a big adventure. I think this right. is where your uh, your th- sort of your like your your theme and your through line kind mm-hmm. of all matter too. So like right. when your themes like shifts, that's another place and time that maybe your adventure's over. Yep, 
Yeah, I mean, if you think about something like the Temple of Elemental Evil, that's an adventure, right? But it's really a campaign. Yeah. And there's, the, you know, the Hamlet part is an adventure in itself. The Moat House is an adventure in itself. The Village of Nulb, where the characters can go as they approach the uh, the temple, is an adventure in its in itself. And then even each of the levels of uh, of the temple are sort of adventures in and of themselves. Because there's one part dealing with all the different uh, cults of of the elements and their interaction with each other and you can do that but then you go off into the elemental nodes and that becomes an adventure in and of itself yeah because they all have like sort of beginning middles and ends and, and sometimes so here's the cool thing about role-playing games especially when you have those bigger bigger mega dungeon type situations or yeah. campaign type situations the stories the beginning the middle and the ends like the players have a lot of say about kind of how some of that stuff works right yeah because like if if your which we'll talk about frameworks in the future if your framework is a dungeon that's more open ended like it's not linear like in, there there's multiple paths to the end and there are multiple areas to go explore then different stories happen at different times within your dungeon mm-hmm. and that's what what makes everybody's experience very unique which is the really cool thing about role playing game adventure design and also role playing yep. games in general mm-hmm so like, it, For sure. like how, how and it's really cool how those different people would have those conversations. Like, yeah, my temple of elements evil went went this way because we went over here first, and then we went and did this, and we went and did that, and then somebody else was like, oh no, we 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 did we did B then then F then A, right? Like, mm-hmm. you get different right. stories, right? You know, we killed every single cultist in the whole place. Oh, we didn't kill any. We just we just pretended that we were earth elemental uh, priests. And we went right through and went right to the end. And, you know, both of them are perfectly cromulent ways of playing the game. No, I agree. Uh, it's just a different story that you're creating as you go. Yeah. Uh, we should talk about scope now. <laughs> yes, let us. All right. So scope. Let's talk about a little bit of a definition for people. So scope is an extent of treatment, activity, or influence. So that is like... That like influence is really the big thing. Like, what is the influence that we're talking about here of of the story that's of the adventure that's being being created, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, scope can vary quite a bit. Like, there are smaller stories that happen inside of bars or neighborhoods. Those those adventures are very small in scope, and then there are larger stories that cover kingdom politics or the fate of thousands of lives. That's a different scope. And then there's like world spanning or multiverse traveling stories that impact existence. So like mm-hmm. you can have anything from very grounded to very epic, like and everything mm-hmm. in between that goes along with that. That is what we're talking about when we're talking about scope. Yep. And the tiers of play fall into this very well. Uh, it, the, the, you don't have to, uh, you know, be chained to one tier of play, meaning a certain scope, but it, it helps. You know, at tier one, levels one to four, it's generally better to have the scope be small, the stakes be small, and, you know, it fit with the power level of the character. Yeah, D&D is very good about that, right? Like, the the, the mm-hmm. abilities that the characters have track well to the to the kind of scope that they're dealing with. Right. At, at, at first and second level, and third and fourth level even, they don't have spells that allow them to travel the planes. Right? Yeah. They don't have spells that allow them to go underwater and uh, perform normally for hours at a time. Not only that, they usually don't have the money to get those get access to those things either. Exactly. So, but then you start getting into Tier 2, which is levels 5 to 10. Now you start seeing some of the spells. You start getting water breathing, which will let characters you know, go underwater. You get fly, which allow them to move around a bit more. Um but you're still dealing with generally local, regional sorts of threats. Then you move on to Tier 3, levels 11 to 16. Now you're talking about world-spanning, um, at least large regional, if not world-spanning problems that the characters are solving. You know, they're Now they're not just saving uh, Silvery Moon or... Water deep. Now they're saving the sword coast. coast. Yeah. And then you get to tier four, 
where you're talking about not just world-spanning problems, but universe-spanning problems. You're traveling to the nine hells. You're traveling to the far realms to save existence. You're fighting Tiamat as she's coming out of the um, the abyss or the nine hells or wherever she's trapped. I always forget. It's the, the gateway between the nine hells and reality, or is it the gateway yep. between the abyss and reality? I always forget. Uh, nine. It's hells. one of those places, right? Yeah, the nine hells. Yep. <laughs> so, like, yeah, go fight your five-headed dragon. That's a god. Mm-hmm. Yep. And so, you know, the, think at least start your adventure scope planning by thinking on those levels. What tier are you fighting or planning for? And based on that tier, what is the scope of the threat? Yeah, and this helps in a lot of ways, but I think primarily it helps with making the adventure um, feel like it mat like it, it's it matters to the characters that are playing it. Mm-hmm. I, I think yeah. that's the primary, at least in Dungeons and Dragons, reason for scope to exist. Because while it's fun, it can be fun to write an adventure where a bunch of first through fourth level characters save all of existence. It's probably going to be more a comedy where they bumbled into it rather than an actual serious adventure that they actually smote something that was very powerful. Exactly. And it will probably also be a limited campaign because once these first through fourth level characters save existence... What else is there to do? Well, I mean, I could think of the campaign frame for that. Like, the first adventures, they save existence. Then everybody thinks they're bigger heroes than they actually are. Yeah. But that's the only one I could think of. Yeah, and and again, that's a comedy trope that is very hard to maintain. Uh, I agree. Like, you have to change your tone. You you have to change your tone if you want your your game to um, persist after that, usually. And, you know, when you think of adventure scope, you also have to think of campaign scope. Are you going to be running this as a limited campaign, which there is absolutely nothing wrong with, and I wish more new DMs especially recognize the fact that most campaigns will fizzle out after like four or five sessions. Yeah, I'm running one right now that lasted eight so far, and I'm like, wow, that's a really long time. Yeah, so if you if you plan for four or five sessions, you are more likely to hit all the marks that you want to hit. You are more likely to entertain the players because you planned for this limited campaign. And if it goes well, you can always extend it. I'm sure in one of our later talks about designing adventures, we will talk about um, you know extending it beyond what it is, ways to leave yourself hooks into a longer campaign. Uh, but... Planning for a limited campaign is a good idea. Yeah, and scope can really help with that, right? Like, mm-hmm. like, uh, well, I'm going to plan my limited campaign for characters levels 5 through 10, mm-hmm. right? Like, in my second tier. So I kind of know what that means. Like, they're going to be dealing with, like, stuff at the city level, maybe some political stuff, probably some, some a couple of dungeons that might uh, might have some sort of impact on the local, local mm-hmm. area, right? Like, and yep. that'll be my campaign. And if that goes well, like it, we can end there, like the end of a season of like a, of a television show, especially like a British television show that only has or a Netflix limited series that only has like ten episodes, and then you can mm-hmm. move on if you want to, or you can play more. Right, and uh, I was going to say something super astute, and it just it's gone. Sorry, man. I I, 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 I talked no, no, too no, much. No, 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 no. It's I, it, I've destroyed. It's not you. Mind. It's totally me. I think it, I think it had to do with scope. Oh yeah, it definitely had to do with scope. Because if you do plan that limited campaign in that one little city, regional area, you can focus your energy in building the NPCs and building the, the setting for that, and not having to worry about what's going on in this other city or on this other plane. You can put your energy where the characters are going to interact with that. Oh man, and that matters too a lot for scope, right? Like a scope, your scope will help define the kind of characters that you're going to make. Mm-hmm. So that that's another thing that'll really impact a lot of things. Sure. Yep. Um, so anything else about scope? Are we good? I think we're pretty good there. Yeah, I mean, I think that's everything then for this episode. Uh, we'll talk. I. Yeah. We'll talk more about adventure design next time. Absolutely. Yeah, uh, but this that's it for this time. And I just want to say thank you everyone for listening. And let's do some Patreon shoutouts. Uh, P.K. Mm-hmm. Sullivan, Rob Abrazzato, Robert Dorgan, Schmitty, Toby Sennett, Todd Crapper, Blake Ryan, Batman, Brandon Barnes, James Sweetland, J- 
Jenna's Pixelscape's Gagney. I've been saying that wrong forever, Sean, and I found out, finally found out that I've been saying it wrong, and now I'm saying it right. <laughs> ah, yeah. I'm glad we we've got that straightened out. Thank you, Jen. Well, Jen, she draws all the crazy good um, chromatic art out there of monsters. It's it's fun to, fun yeah, to look yeah, at. It's it is it really fun. Um, Kevin Minorzak, the old school DM Randy Farmer, our very own Mad Wizard Merwin. Thanks, Sean. Uh, Troy mm-hmm. Sandlin and Will Doyle. Uh, speaking of patrons, if you'd like to be a patron of Down With D&D, you can click on the link to our Patreon page, which is on the website, and for $2 a month, you can get yourself a shout-out. Or for $4 a month, you not only get a shout-out, but you also get to see our pre-production show notes, and you have access to our Misdirected Mark Slack room, where you can chat with us wherever and whenever you are. If you can't help us out monetarily, but you want to give us a boost, you can do so with an Apple Podcast review. You know the deal with that. Other podcatchers use it to rate and rank shows, helps make us more visible. Thank you, and spread the good gospel of Down With D&D on social media if you can. It helps make us visible. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, also, you might notice that we stopped numbering our episodes, and that's because Apple doesn't like numbers on episodes, apparently. Who knew? I know, right? Hey, Sean, where can we find you on the internet? Uh, the bus, The blessed place. The best place place to find me is on twitter at sean it's also the blessed place it is how about you chris so the the show and the network twitter is at misdirected mark so if you do that and just put hashtag dnd i'll see it and respond and all that good stuff Mm -hmm. um you can also go to the website where you can catch other great shows such as the gnome cast which is where several gnomes from the gnomes do get together to talk about gaming topics and themselves in an effort to entertain you and avoid being thrown in the stew um also Mm -hmm. We are currently testing our new forums, so that's a thing that's existing in the world, and hopefully they'll be out Yay. soon. Cool. Down with D&D is a misdirected Mark production, the media arm of Encoded Designs. Yes, it is. So what are we going to do now, Sean? We are going to go kill some monsters. Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. 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 I'm down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. You're down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. I'm down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Who's down with D&D?